the National Archives podcast series, The Strange Journey of Edward Swarthy, an African in Elizabethan England, from the Spanish Caribbean to rural Gloucestershire, presented by Dr. Miranda Kaufman. This is the first really exciting story I found in my own research, and I found it right here in the National Archives, which is why I'm talking about it to you here today. My research is uh, on Africans in Britain between 1500 and 1640, so that's the Tudor and early Stuart period, and I finished my um, uh, thesis on that earlier this year. And uh, it's a really under-researched area. So as late as 1999... Paul Hare, who was the Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Liverpool, wrote that black Africans were hardly at all known in England. But over the last few years, there's emerging evidence of a larger black presence than is previously known. For example, in 2004, when I started my research, there were less than 100 known examples, but I've found evidence of over 350 individuals in Britain in that period. Where do we find the evidence for this black presence? Well, one of the really great sources of evidence, in terms of numbers at least, are parish registers. And in the years before censuses, this kind of record is the best way to demonstrate just the sort of numbers that were around. Unfortunately, they don't tell us very much more about that individual. I mean, we don't even have a surname. Uh, There's just really not very much to go on to find out any more about his life. So the Black and Asian Londoners Project found over 2,000 references in parish registers between 1597 and 1856, and those are available online. But there are other sources for this history, and they can be a bit more idiosyncratic, but they do give us more details. So I found evidence in tax returns, household accounts, wills, diaries, letters, court records. There are lots of little bits that we have to try and piece together. And there are so many stories I could tell you, but today we're going to focus on on one man, Edward Swarthy. And why? Well, firstly, because I found him in the National Archives, and that's where we are. But also because, um, because he appeared in a court record. We know a lot more about him than we do the average African known about only because of a baptism or burial. And his case is particularly interesting because... From his story, we can learn a bit more about the answers to these questions, which were some of the central questions of my research, which were how Africans came to Britain, how they were employed, and what their legal status was, and were they slaves. So how did I find Edward Swarthy? Well, looking for Africans in the archives, as you can imagine, is not very straightforward. In fact, it's kind of needle in a haystack kind of work. And The information in British archives isn't very helpful in some ways uh, in that it tends to be indexed, if it is at all, by surname or date or place. If you go to the archive and say, I'm looking for Africans, the finding aids are not going to help you. (laughs) There is no kind of register of Africans or French people or anything. It's just not there. And in in our case, it's even more difficult because many of the Africans that we do know about in Britain didn't have surnames as such. It's just not very easy. So when I first came here, I headed straight to the uh, search catalogue and I started typing in search terms between my dates of 1500 to 1640 and I tried African. That wasn't very helpful. Blackamoor, which was actually the most popular term in the parish registers, but didn't really give me anything great. Um, I tried Ethiop. And then I tried Negro, which obviously is an offensive term today, but it was one used at the time. So when I put in Negro into the search engine, I found two results. 
The first one is from the State Papers, SP94, um, and it relating to an uprising in Goa in 1591. So the second one, on the other hand, was very intriguing. It says, Buck versus Windler swore the alias Negro, and 39 Elizabeth, so that's 1597, the 39th year of Elizabeth, the first reign. And stack meant that it was in the Star Chamber records. So that's the court of the Star Chamber. And the Star Chamber was, of course, abolished by the Long Parliament in 1641. But it was still going strong in 1597. But uh, this, this didn't tell me very much, so I had to call the document up to get a better idea of who this mysterious swarthy alias Negro was. What can we learn about Swarthy from this document? It says, Edward Swarthy, alias Negro, servant to Sir Edward Winter, knight, sworn and examined. So just from this really brief description of the man, there are various things we can deduce. His first name is Edward, and that's the same first name as his master, Edward Winter. And to me, that suggests that he may have been baptised with an English name, with Winter as his godfather, because that was quite a typical thing to happen when people were baptised as adults in this way. Perhaps the most famous example is Leo Africanus, the writer whose godfather was Pope Leo X. Unfortunately, the registers for this local parish um, does not survive before 1678, so there's no way of finding out for sure whether he was baptised. And his surname, Swarthy, is a descriptive name, which suggests that he must have had dark skin, because Swarthy is an old English term for dark-skinned. And combined with this alias, or alternative name of Negro, is highly suggestive of African origin. So what did he have to say in this document? I couldn't read it all straight away, but one word jumped out and that was the word whip and a bit later on in the document there was whipping so I'd found an African giving evidence in a court about a whipping and as you might imagine I assumed that Swarthy would be the one being whipped but I was wrong and what was really interesting when I managed to decipher the document was that Swarthy was not being whipped but in fact doing the whipping this is a snapshot in a wider case, and I knew that to really get to the bottom of what was going on here, I had to find out more. So at this point, the traditional finding aids came in handy, because now I had a surname. So I had Winter, and I found other documents related to the same court case. And I was able to slowly but surely piece together what was really going on. So our scene is set in Gloucestershire, in a little place called Lydney, and... There was a long-running family feud between the Burke family and the Winter family, and, in fact, the archives here record their fathers going to court with each other as well. In this case, James Burke, who was actually verderer of the Forest of Dean over there, had accused his neighbour, Sir Edward Winter, a local landowner, of enclosing the common land, using wood from the Forest of Dean for his ironworks and his own household fuel, um, of causing Burke to be assaulted, so actually getting some, have, paying somebody to beat his neighbour up. I mean, this is a really nasty neighbour case. And of having John Guy whipped. So John Guy was Burke's new son-in-law, and according to the documents, he had, he'd been whipped in the hall at White Cross Manor, which was Sir Edward Winter's house, in front of over 20 people. And this last accusation was the only part of the case against him that Winter freely admitted. And it's also where our hero Edward Swarthy comes in because, according to Burke, Winter had commanded one Edward Swarthy alias Negro, his servant being a Negro or blackamoor with a cudgel or riding wand, to beat and whip the said John Guy about the legs and sundry parts of his body. 
well, who was this guy and why did he deserve this? John Guy had served the Winter family since he was a child. He was educated in Greek, Latin and French. A high-ranking servant in control of the ironworks and uh, earning £60 a year. And he had also recently married James Burke's daughter. Why was he whipped? Well, this is where the, uh, the people in the case disagree. According to Burke, Winter was angry that Guy had married his enemy's daughter. And, he said, not as yet satisfied with the said barbarous cruelties used towards me, he endeavoured further how to oppress, punish and disgrace such as he knew to bear any good affection towards me. See, the Tudors, certainly in their documents, they'll never use one verb when three will do. Not just oppress, not just punish, but oppress, punish, and disgrace. Apparently it was a legal thing. They wanted to cover all potential areas. They weren't very happy with each other. But Winter, on the other hand, was claiming that he was punishing Guy for his negligence in absconding to Ireland with two other servants when he ought to have been taking care of the ironworks. So Winter writes, Whilst I was from home and in London, Guy, most lewdly and negligently, absented himself from my business and went into Ireland without making me privy or acquainted therewith, suffering the said ironworks to remain in great danger of miscarrying in the meantime, greatly to my loss and hindrance. So it's actually in this evidence of, around the whipping that our suspicion that Edward Swarthy must have been African can be confirmed because he's clearly described as such by the various testimonies. So Burke refers to Edward Swarthy, alias Negro, his servant being a Negro or Blackamoor. One of the interrogatories, uh, the 13th interrogatory to the other witnesses, asks whether Winter commanded Edward Swarthy, alias Negro, the Blackamoor, to beat, whip, or strike John Guy. And another witness called George Huntley describes how the Negro did strike the said John Guy and that Winter caused a blackamoor or Negro one Edward Swarthy to strike the said Guy. So, I mean, I think it's really important to be sure of our identification. In these old documents, sometimes language can be confusing. Calling somebody black might mean they had dark hair. But in this case, it's really clear that this man is definitely of African origin with dark skin. So what else can we learn about Swarthy from these documents? How did he end up in Gloucestershire? Well, there's no explicit record of how Swarthy came to be living in England. However, I did some digging on Edward Winter, and I learnt that he was the son of the naval administrator, Sir William Winter, and that he had been an MP um, in various terms, and he was there at the Armada. He was in prison in France after the Armada for a few years. Then he got knighted when he got home. And as you know, by 1597, he was in court. But the key fact that I found out about him was that in 1585-6, to six, he had commanded a ship called the Aid on Sir Francis Drake's voyage to the Caribbean. And this set the alarm bells ringing because I knew a bit about this particular voyage. Francis Drake took a fleet of 24 ships from Plymouth in September 1585 and raided Spanish ports in Santiago in the Cape Verde Islands and then across to Santo Domingo, Cartagena, San Augustine and went back to Portsmouth via Roanoke and he got back in July 1586 so they were away for almost a year and at every port on this voyage enslaved Africans joined the English so those were Africans that had been enslaved by the Spanish and taken to work in their colonies there 
And one of the Spaniards, Pedro Sanchez, testified later at Havana in June 1586 that Drake carried off 150 Negroes and Negresses from Santo Domingo and Cape Verde alone. The Spanish actually suspected that Drake has intended to take the Africans to Roanoke to help establish the new English colony there. But in the event, Drake, when he got to Roanoke, found that the English were desperate to go home. And shortly after his arrival there, there was a huge storm that killed many of them, including perhaps some of the Africans. But some definitely survived. One got as far as Paris, as Edward Stafford, the ambassador to France, reported... There is in this town a Negro with a cut on his face that saith he came with Sir Francis Drake and stole away from him when he was landed in England. And other Africans also came back to England on this voyage. We know of a blackamoor who arrived in the household of Henry Percy, the ninth Earl of Northumberland, at some point between the 14th of October 1586 and 14th of February 1587, and was brought there by somebody de just described as Mr. Cross's man. And this was probably Robert Cross, who was part of Drake's company and captain of the ship, the Bond. And there was also the Ethiopian that a Cornish mariner called John Lax of Foy brought to the Portuguese Jewish doctor Hector Nunez in October 1586. And he's described as being brought from the port of Santa Domingo in Nova Spain beyond the seas. And so that was one of the ports that Drake had raided. So Swarthy seems most likely to have come to England in this way from the Spanish Caribbean and would have been living, therefore, in Lydney for about 11 years by the time of the trial. So what work did Swarthy do for Sir Edward Winter? Well, in the documents, he's described as a porter. Brilliantly enough, Anthony Maria Brown, the Viscount Montague, had a household book written in 1595, which has a whole section entitled The Porter and His Office. So for once, they're answering the question, though the Viscount Montague's household was probably a bit bigger and grander than that of Sir Edward Winter's. But the description that they have is that he said, I will that the porter in time of extraordinary action or at solemn feasts as Christmas, Easter and Whitsuntide have his mess of meat into his office that he may give his diligent attendance at the gate as well for the repair of strangers as for any disordered persons that would come in at no convenient time and that he do answer all comers of meaner sort at the gate. I will that ordinarily he dine and sup at the first sitting in the hall next to the yeoman of my chamber. So what can we take from that description? Well, he's clearly a highly responsible role. He's the first man that anybody sees when they arrive at the house, and it's up to him to decide who to let in and who not to. And he sits next to the yeoman of the chamber at mealtimes, which means he's at that similar status. So the yeoman of the chamber had access to the bedchamber, which meant he was a pretty trusted servant. You don't let just anybody in your bedroom. So equally, because they're sitting at the same table and hall, that means that the porter was also quite a high-status servant. And being the first person that you see when you come in, it, I, I mean, I do think it's interesting that so Edward Swarthy would have been the first individual that visitors would meet. And perhaps people like to put a, a, an African servant next to them, partly to show a kind of worldly experience. I mean, maybe this was an earlier form of displaying your souvenir from my trip to the Caribbean. As we also realised from this, that he, he had this role of denying entry to unwelcome visitors. I suppose the burning question is, well, was he a slave? There was no actual law of slavery in England at this time. As uh, William Harrison explained in his description of England in 1587, 
As for slaves and bondmen, we have none. Nay, such is the privilege of our country by the especial grace of God and bounty of our princes, that if any come hither from other realms, so soon as they foot set foot on land, they have become as free in condition as their masters, whereby all note of servile bondage is utterly from, removed from them. We shouldn't, of course, take his word for it. But, in fact, the only known court case to explicitly consider the issue of slavery in Elizabeth's reign resolved that England has too pure an air for slaves to breathe in. That was actually in relation to a Russian man, but the principle was there. And again, in 1587, Hector Nunez admitted to the Court of Requests that he had no remedy by the course of the common law of this realm to compel the said Ethiopian to serve him during his life. So he'd come up against the law in practice and realised he didn't have a leg to stand on. But that in practice, beyond what, what was or wasn't in the law books, the fact that Edward Swarthy was considered a reliable witness in court tells us quite a lot about his status. Because under Roman law, um, slaves could not give evidence unless it was taken under torture. In England, uh, villains, the, the feudal serfs of medieval England, could not get evidence in court. As late as the 1530s, the Duke of Suffolk was brought before the Court of Chancery to represent one of his villains, who was unable to appear himself. And equally, in colonial America, slaves were not allowed to testify in court. In 1732, it was enacted in Virginia that black men and women are people of such base and corrupt natures that their testimony cannot be certainly depended upon. So the very fact that Swarthy was allowed to testify in the English courts of law here is quite powerful evidence that he was not considered to be a slave. He's also treated the same as the other witnesses in the case. These are interrogatories submitted to some of Winter's other servants, Charles Jones and William Goldrick. And the language here, they use the terms like your master in the same way to refer to Winter. And all three are asked to report Winter's speeches, to, to report back on what Winter had been saying, to see if he'd been saying anything nasty about Burke, basically. So, um, so Swarthy was obviously deemed as competent a witness as they were. And Swarthy is, is never referred to in the documents as a slave, and Winter himself refers to Swarthy simply as his porter. Indeed, although there are no records of the Winter family household expenses surviving, Edward Swarthy may have been paid wages, like other Africans in England at the time. So, for example, John Blank was a trumpeter at the court uh, from, of the Tudor court from at least 1507. He performed at Henry VII's funeral and Henry VIII's coronation in 1509. And here we see him playing at the Westminster Tournament of 1511, which was a huge tournament lasting two days uh, to celebrate the birth of a son to King Henry and Queen Catherine of Aragon. John Blank, he was paid 20 shillings for the month of November 1507, you can see here. That was at a rate of eight pence a day, meaning an annual salary of 12 pounds. And that actually doubled uh, under Henry VIII, which a little bit of evidence to you know, Henry VII's reputation of being a miser. Henry VIII seemed to have doubled his trumpeter's wages, and for the Westminster tournament, they were actually paid ten times their normal salary for those two days. There was a drummer at the court of James IV of Scotland who was being paid £4.7 shillings and sixpence in May 1505, on a regular basis as a quarterly fee. Thomas Geronimo, an African sailor, received 16 pounds, 16 shillings and 10 pence from the East India Company for his services by November 1623. And in the household accounts of the Earl of Bath show a James the Blackamoor, his cook, 
at Torstock in Devon in the 1640s being paid £4 a year. The other thing is that if he had been baptised, as I suggested at the beginning, and also like 66 other Africans that we found in the parish registers at this time, that would also seem to contradict slave status. Because Pope Eugenius IV, in his bull Sicut Dudum of 1435, sentenced to excommunication all who attempt to capture, sell, or subject to slavery, baptised residents of the Canary Islands, or those who are freely seeking baptism. In 1667, the Virginia Assembly declared that conversion to Christianity would not give an African freedom, which implies that previously it had. And in fact, an English court would be unlikely to accept the testimony of a heathen or non-Christian, so in two cases, the testimony of an African witness was questioned on these very grounds. So in 1548, again in documents in the National Archives High Court of Admiralty, a Venetian sailor complained that the said James Francis is a Morisco born where they are not christened and therefore no credit nor faith ought to be given to his sayings. And in 1609, the pirate William Longcastle beseeched the court, let the tongue of a Christian and not of a pagan cut off my life. But revealingly, in both of these cases, the testimony of the Africans in question was accepted. Long, he didn't win his, and Longcastle got executed. In conclusion, Edward Swarthy, alias Negro, was not a slave, but rather had most likely escaped slavery in the Spanish Caribbean to become a trusted servant in Gloucestershire, not being whipped, but holding the cudgel or riding wand himself. And from his story, we can learn that English privateering activities in the Caribbean could result in Africans coming to England, that Africans served in gentry households in trusted roles like that of Porter, and that Africans were allowed to testify in court, suggesting that they were not regarded as slaves in the eyes of the law. This podcast was recorded on the 16th of November 2012 as part of Diversity Week at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.